0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we have our London correspondent, Matthew Lesh giving us a perspective from the other side of the world, both on the UK and also on the European Union as to what's going on with coronavirus, lockdowns and trying to get some semblance of economic activity going again. Plus, we'll also be asking Matthew and my co-host Chris Berg for their culture picks, which today include, very appropriately, Albert Camus' The Plague, a long-ago novel about what it was like living in a time of plague, which is now highly relevant. We, For lighter relief, we have the Jack Ryan TV series, and I'll be talking about an amazing 27,000-word takedown of a philosopher that I actually quite like, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Uh, but I like him a bit less after having read this. Uh, But we'll be coming back to that in a a moment. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Before I introduce my fellow panellists, I will remind you that this is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. I've got one word for you, the listener, ipa.org.au. That is the URL that you can go to to find out how to join or donate or read some of our latest research, some of the latest emails that we've been sending members uh, talking about the coronavirus and other issues, talking about teachers, unions, refusing to go back to work and all sorts of other juicy issues. So please do go to that website, get around it. Uh, First of all, my co-host from RMIT University and adjunct fellow at the IPA, Dr. Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Chris, it's great to have you back in the Working From Home studio. <laughs> and uh, thanks to the wonders of technology, we also have uh, Matthew Lesh joining us. M- Matthew, welcome.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Attentive listeners will know that uh, Matthew's a longtime research fellow uh, at the IPA, the scourge of universities, of vice chancellors all over Australia, champion of free speech, uh, left us sadly to become uh, Director of Research at the Adam Smith Institute in London, remains an adjunct fellow at the IPA and uh, very pleased to have you on the show today.
1: It's, it's great to be back in, at home at the IPA. It's a bit like the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never really leave.
0: That's exactly how it works. Um, yes, we've, we've got the pictures from the Christmas party, so <laughs> oh, whenever, <no. laughs> whenever we ask you to step up, you'll just have to, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, Chris, would you like to paint a picture for us? Get Matthew's brain working on some...
2: <laughs> Let's paint a picture. Let's um, uh, talk... About the policy issue that is um, uh, focusing Australian politics at the moment. And I know Matthew from um, across the other side of the world have been following this one very closely. And that's the COVID Safe app, the contact tracing app that the Australian government has released um, that's supposed to digitally help us trace our contacts just in case we or someone we come in contact with has been infected by COVID-19. So the app was released um, uh, just yesterday, I think it was. We're recording this on Tuesday. Um, uh, I've downloaded it onto my phone to have a look how it is. I have some I have some concerns about the personal privacy. Um, uh, some other people have made some, um, uh, have some other concerns about the way And where the um, app is storing its data. But it's an interesting instance of a a, a technological solution to a social challenge or a biological challenge. Matthew, as I say, I know that you've been looking into it. What what has your take been, not just on the app itself, but maybe the debate as you've seen it around privacy?
1: Sure. So so first of all, I think it's uh, it's kind of refreshing in a way to actually be having a debate about privacy. This is something um, that, Chris, obviously you've been passionate about for a long time, uh, just you know, one of your many books is about the issue of privacy, but doesn't seem to be something that we really talk about uh, in public debate beyond kind of niche circles. Um, personally, I'm a little bit more comfortable with this app than uh, a lot of the kind of fellow libertarian or classical liberals I've been following in Australia. And that's basically just for the reason that um In some ways, it's a lesser of two two evils. Uh, The current social restrictions we have where we're all locked out at home um, is a a huge affront to our civil liberties. And if we can uh, get out of that by giving up at least some of our privacy and and some of our our traditional rights in that sense, but at the same time, I think we can get back a lot more rights to live our lives at the same time as saving lives. I think that's something... I'm willing to sacrifice in the short term, which is not something I would ever expect myself to say, but it's something I'm willing to do. At the same time, um, the Australian app isn't ideal. I think there's uh, there's been quite a big debate in the last few weeks in Europe about how to create these apps, because there are ways to do it um, that can completely anonymize the data, There can be a completely privacy-protecting, where you've got a decentralised, secure um, storage of the data so that there's never a central point um, in which your contact uh, information and and your and who you've been near goes to a central database. But that's not exactly the design the Australian government has chosen. They've chosen a design in which it, it all stays on your phone up until the point that you are marked positive, And then that's sent to a central database as far as I can tell. So that's probably not an ideal design. Hosted
0: by Am- Amazon, which is Hosted, hosted by
1: Amazon. I mean, it is worth noting that um, I, I'm not I'm not particularly anxious about Amazon hosting that data. I mean, Amazon already hosts a lot of data about all, all of us across a whole variety of services. I was thinking there's, there's another interesting part here about... I, I, I,
2: do, I, I do want to quickly just dwell on that Amazon point because um, uh, a lot of people have raised that as an issue and, and I can understand that. And there are some questions about how... Um, uh, how how much u.s law will apply first of all it is it, the amazon server they're using is in sydney not in the united states but there's a chance that u.s law will apply the 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 real issue is that there's really no australian infrastructure that would be anywhere near capable of doing what an amazon web server would uh, web service server would be able to do the idea that we've got a australian equivalent or that the government could run its own would be far more dangerous um uh, than anything amazon can provide for us but sorry matthew
1: if, if you look at the census, it's a pretty it's a pretty clear indication that uh, perhaps our government isn't that good at providing IT services. But I think <laughs> yeah. the point I was kind of reaching is this: there's, there's a very just kind of revealed and stated preference here, and um, when it comes to privacy, that occasionally you can get people saying something that um, they're super concerned about privacy, or you know, it's something conceptually they're worried about. But when it comes to the practice of it, I think it's often something. Uh, people are willing to give up data about themselves for some benefit. I think we do that all the time when we log into Facebook or Instagram and we're putting up a lot more information uh, than even this Atwood store. Um, And people, the fact there's already been something like 2 million people in about 24 hours, I think it was, who have downloaded the app, says to me that that at least in the short run, uh, people are willing to make this trade-off. Now, I, I am worried about the implications of this. I am worried about... Um, even government creating some kind of ID about who has and hasn't had coronavirus. I think the implications of that for, for privacy and, and our civil liberties are quite substantial. But I think in this case, in the short run, it's something that I'm kind of willing to accept for the purposes of, of trying to overcome this virus. But we should also, have, we're not actually sure this is going to work. Um, these, these kind of apps, uh, it was trialled in Singapore. It didn't really work in Singapore because the app wasn't good enough. I don't think this app is good enough yet because you've got to keep it open the whole time. Um, until Apple and Google, who are developing a framework in which it can run in the background, um, and they're producing a pretty pro-privacy yeah,
0: that, um, so framework. That, that, yeah, that's uh, for, for Apple devices. Uh, I might put in here that um, it's in, it's interesting you said it's great that it's putting the focus on privacy. I think a lot of this debate is almost sort of performative in a way. I mean, it's quite right that libertarians are Jumping up and down, um, and I'm sure some of our listeners. The moment you said you were willing to make that trade of, of liberty for security, they'll be <laughs> I know you it's know, so dark. thumbing through their Federalist papers as we speak, ready to come back with the opposite quote about um, you, then That's you deserve neither. Sure. Um, I wonder whether there's isn't a performative element to this for the government as well. Like when we say it's going to work, I, I I don't know that it's necessarily whether it works for contact tracing. It probably will. To some extent, um, it, but maybe this is just more the excuse that the government needs. Because what, what staggers us on looking, you know, for the most part, on looking forward is what is this resistance to actually starting to unlock the economy and get people back into work? I mean, you know, when you've got effective rates of unemployment of anywhere between sort of 14 and 25 percent, depending on how you define it, entire industries shut down, uh, but. Uh, the government can't find a path. It's almost like this is a circuit breaker that they need to say, "Oh, that's okay. We can have people moving about now because we've got this app."
2: And yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot to that, Scott. Um, and it's interesting thinking. So, so as I said, I, I to to have a look at what it was. I downloaded onto. My phone today. Now, um, it's every time I pick up my phone, there's a little thing, and I've got an Android phone, so it actually functions. Uh, every time I pick up my phone, there's got a little thing that's keeping me safe. I haven't lived the house, of course, so there's no um, <laughs> actual benefit. Now, so, but, but um, and that's a slightly facetious point, but the, the real point is that um, right now, in the Australian circumstances, it's not totally clear what marginal benefit it will provide. Contact tracing, the way we do contract tracing right now, is a very manual process and involves manual interviews. And it will continue to involve manual interviews even um, uh, after, you know, even if there was maximum adoption of of this app. It'll still require people to tell a um, a Department of Health official where they went, who they met with, um, how long they were there, and so forth. The contact tracing app, only warns you if you've been in the space of someone else with, um, who, who's been uh, found infectious from uh, COVID-19 for 15 minutes, if you're in a space with them for 15 minutes. It's not totally clear to me that the marginal value this app is providing would um, it, it is really significant, especially in an environment where we've got incredibly low Numbers. If the if we were having thousands of new cases a day, the Department of Health just didn't have the um, manpower to do the manual contact tracing. That would be a totally different situation. If the economy was wide open, maybe it'd be a different situation again. We're interacting with people in bars and restaurants and clubs and so forth. But that's just not the circumstance that we're in. So when I'm looking at this app and I'm thinking about the ways they could have done it better if they'd waited a few more days to join the Google-Apple um uh, 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 system. If they'd waited a couple more weeks to do a better privacy-preserving one, I think they jumped the gun because it's not totally clear why it had to be released right now. When when really we can't do anything. They could have waited. Some I, think time. I, I think. It I think I just told right. you
0: why why it has to be now.
2: Yeah, yeah, because uh, no, and I think that's a the good politics, point. Politics. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, if that's if it's just a if it's a sap to make us feel safe to go out. Then I get that if it's what we're talking about is sort of trying to um, reduce a demand, an economic demand constraint, perhaps it'll encourage us to go to restaurants. Well, I get that, but, but I I'm kind of sick in this crisis of politicians and public health officials not telling us why they're making decisions and trying to impose behavioral manipulations on this. I think that's, I think that's actually really counterproductive and it's been seen to be counterproductive.
1: I mean, the only, the only advantage I can see to the Australian government releasing the app relatively early is potentially that they will increase the adoption. It's going to take some time for the the millions of people you need to download this app to download the app. So maybe releasing it early um, will mean that by the time Apple and Google release their framework and then uh, presumably the government will um, implement that framework into the software um, or it's hopefully they will, uh, it would be something that would be already on a lot of people's phones. Um, but, I, but I think you're right that and we are in this uh, fascinating situation now where we've, we've put, kind of put in place the most draconian uh, restrictions imaginable, restrictions that we, we literally a couple months ago thought that when China did it, that, that was something that could just never happen in Australia or the UK or the US. And yet somehow not only has that happened, but people have been broadly accepting of it. And even in the UK, you've got 30 or 40% of people who think um, that the restrictions aren't harsh enough. that They want, they want to be locked down even more uh, than they currently are, which is quite a disturbing thought. So as an exit strategy... It, it kind of makes sense and, and seems quite sensible. But but we're in such a weird debate and from afar it seems like Australia's already, you know, basically won the coronavirus battle, at least in in, in stage one. And the fact that Australia can't start to lift uh, restrictions is a pretty roaring sign for the UK that's still got quite a number of cases but but also can't afford to keep this lockdown going on forever and needs some kind of extra strategy with popular support.
2: I, I'd like to jump to that in, in a moment, but I do want to make just one final point about the app. And that's the big problem that the government has right now is that they have absolutely no credibility on privacy matters. Um, the amount of reforms, national security law changes that they have introduced over the last decade that they have said would do one thing, but in practice turned out to be another is extraordinary, and in a sequence of legislative changes from data retention to the encryption debate, the government has announced policies, said they would be strictly limited for only preventing terrorists they will only um, uh, violate the privacy of people who've um, uh, who are accused or, or suspected of serious crimes and then we discover that in fact they're being used by economic regulators or even local councils or um, gaming authorities and so forth and and the problem is that over the last decade the government has so squandered its political capital, on um, on privacy limiting legislation that I think the Australian population, quite rightly, when it hears about this app, it's the first thing that they think, even though the government says that they're going to protect your privacy, do you really trust the government to do so? Now, the, app, the adoption of this app has been very, very high, or at least the government seems to be um, surprised and excited. It's been very, very high, but I think there's a widespread belief in the community that there are serious privacy questions about that, rightly or wrongly, and that's entirely because of the credibility of government on on privacy.
0: Yeah, and also that the government's willingness to um, reach for some facetious arguments again—it's been pointed out by libertarians that when you know ministers run the line and say, "Well, you know, there's much less data being uh, uploaded here than is available to the to the Googles and and Facebooks of the world." um is, is to miss the point that they are private organizations and you, you're accessing their their services voluntarily in in return for a for something uh, of benefit and um, you know Google can't put you in jail Facebook can't put you you know Google can't share your data with the with the tax office well unless the tax office makes them but um, you know it's it's sort of a false equivalence to say that um, because you're happy to use geolocation data you know and share it with with uber therefore you should be happy to share it with the government
2: oh it's it's a fundamentally misleading argument the idea that you're willing to share information with one then you should be completely willing to share an infinite amount of information under all circumstances i mean that's obviously nuts but for some reason that's the level of um argument that we see in the privacy debate
0: it is um so let
2: us talk more about britain Yes, Britain. Um, so uh, we've we've mentioned that the um, Australian experience and the British experience are very different. Um, Matthew, obviously, um, uh, it, the viruses or the disease has been much more severe in the UK. You've been observing Australian politics from afar, but why don't you talk us through your impression about um, how the, U- the politics of um, COVID-19 are playing out in the United Kingdom, given the, the um, virulence of the disease there?
1: Sure, so, so I think it's uh, first important to give a bit of context about where the UK is with this virus. Um, as you've said, it is substantially worse uh, than Australia in terms of the outbreak. Um, unlike uh, Australia, the UK has had a community transmission of COVID-19 that probably started around February um, and then became quite substantial into March. I've got a critique about the extent of testing and the failure of Public Health England that basically meant that we didn't see the outbreak coming, unlike in Australia. We didn't have strong border controls, unlike Australia. Um, And then when people started showing up in hospital, um, really by their thousands and then dying by their thousands, I think we're well over 20,000 dead now, uh, it was all too late. And by the time the lockdown was introduced, um, it was probably necessary to some extent. We're going to have a debate about that for many years to come, but it, it was definitely that the the virus had taken hold, and if correct, substantial corrective measures weren't taken, the healthcare system would have been overwhelmed. Um, that said, though, we're now well past that process. So we had an initial three week lockdown. Uh, we've then had that extended extended by three weeks. If you look at the the data on particularly deaths in hospitals, that peaked about April eight. So we're, we're definitely over over the peak without the healthcare system being overwhelmed. I mean, one of the most extraordinary. Um, successes of the National Health Service, something that I think we all have a critique of for being quite a centralized healthcare system, basically managed to not be particularly bureaucratic in this case, managed to expand capacity, managed to build new hospitals with the private sector, with the military, um, to the point where we had these Nightingale facilities with 2,000 beds in London and thousands of other beds around the country that are basically empty. Um, they're talking about re-establishing um, non-urgent surgery and non-urgent operations in the NHS, because you've got all this additional capacity. At the same time, however, the politics of this is fascinating because the, the lockdown had overwhelming public support. One of the reasons why the UK was relatively slow um, in terms of its outbreak to go to lockdown, despite uh, a growing number of cases, was because of an, a behavioural assumption. Now, there was a lot of mistakes and behavioural assumptions. This one was probably a relatively benign mistake in a behavioural assumption, the assumption that people wouldn't accept a lockdown. In fact, the opposite came to pass. Uh, we ended up with just, over just to nine-
2: jump on Just to jump on yeah. that, though, that came out of the famous behavioural nudge unit which is trying to make predictive claims about psychological um economic psychology isn't it yeah
1: oh absolutely and and we all know behavioral psychology or just psychology in general 50 percent of papers are um not (laughs) replicatable so that there's the replication crisis and then you've got kind of this behavioral economic psychology of trying to predict something that's really never been tried before never happened before and what we've found is that over 90 percent of people in the uk supported the lockdown um to the extent to which in in polls in the last few weeks Uh, about 30, 40%, as I was saying earlier, wanted it to be extended. So the government's now in a bit of a tricky position. Um, First of all, it doesn't want a second wave of the virus. Now, this is a a fair point. If you remove the lockdown too early, um, people look at the San Francisco example from... Uh, the, the Spanish flu. Who they withdrew the lockdown relatively quickly, and then they had a bigger second wave. Um, so that's kind of an epidemiological threat: is that if you don't su- suppress the virus enough, and you move restrictions too quickly, um, you do get a second wave. Now, nobody is seriously saying we should, you know, go back to normal or completely, withdraw the real- lockdown. You couldn't even if you wanted to, because human behaviour wouldn't allow that. Um, but at the same time, you have to be very careful with phasing down the lockdown, so what they call the R0, the replication rate, doesn't go above one. so that doesn't, each person isn't giving it to more than one person, therefore it doesn't um, grow exponentially um, as a result. So that's that's the, that's the first one second one is the economic reality. Um, About 35% of the UK economy is currently shut down, we're seeing already well over millions of people unemployed. Um, As all the work you've done Chris suggests, uh, the economic cost of this is going to be much larger than being predicted, the economy is not going to go back to normal, and there's a lot of political pressure mounting to start restarting the economy. Um, some of that's already happening. Uh, there are certain chains like McDonald's that are reopening in the UK or pret a if, if anyone's been to the UK in recent years, is the, the famous high street sandwich um, shop. They're reopening some of their branches for takeaway. So there's a little bit of economic activity restarting. And then you've got the third one, which is the most tricky, which is what we're getting to, is the politics of this. Um, there, there's those, according to reporting, those in cabinet who say, basically, we couldn't lift the lockdown now, even if we wanted to because the public would not accept it. Uh, because the public support for lockdown is so strong, um, we can't get rid of it. And this is very much what I find interesting. And and I want to hear your thoughts on where the Australia debate is at, because quite frankly, you don't have a clinical concern. You only have an economic impetus to reopen, Um, but you still have this political impetus not to do so. You have this opposition to restarting the economy.
2: Yeah look I I think that's changing and um my read of the politics changes every couple of days because that's just the pace of this whole thing but I I think that's changing in Australia um partly because the numbers are so low but partly because in addition to that we're also starting to drill down on the um virological implications of each of the different restrictions so the debate this week is um should we let kids back into schools as we all know um uh children don't um suffer from the virus but they may well um transmit the virus um or they don't suffer as much from the virus but they may well transmit it so the debate right now is about schools um so a very but i think paper from, um, yeah, go New go South
1: Wales, uh that just came out i don't know if you saw that suggested that in fact even Kids might not transmit it very much either. Um, so
2: yeah, that's, no, that, the, yeah, that, that's that's right. That that's right. Um, I I wonder about the reliability of some of these studies because I think there's so much work being done, particularly in Australia, on such small numbers, mm. um, uh, that it's sort of hard to um. It's very hard to take lessons from the research that's been done on an Australian population and project that to um, uh, to to policy advice, and that's particularly the case if we start worrying that the um, that there might be different demographic profiles in different countries. There might be uh, even even the virus might mutate between countries, but that's these are some statistical um, issues that we have. But but um, uh, by and large, I think that. Every Australian over the next week is going to look at the numbers in Australia, where um, even in New South Wales, where it was most virulent, we're down to well below 10 almost every single day. Um, we get zeros in Victoria. We, I think we had two today. Um, the numbers are just so low. Our testing capacity is so high. We, we It appears, if you look at the raw numbers, they are running out of people to test and people are starting to wonder, well, why on earth can't I go round and um, have a beer with my mate? Um, uh, uh, Queensland and New South Wales are starting to relax. Some of the restrictions on, on that Western Australia is going further again. Um, uh, but I think we don't have that tough problem. It seems like the UK has a, a devil's choice to make, which is you need to open up the economy to some margin, but opening up the economy will encourage transmission at some margin. It looks like Australia's been so successful that, that that's just not a choice we're going to have to make. All we're doing is just looking at a staged wind back of of the policies and none too late in my view. Yeah,
0: but uh, Matthew, before uh, before you come back to that, I you, you made the point that the worry now is that there isn't the appetite amongst the public uh, for removing the lockdowns and that, that to me is very scary this is um, something I have uh, written about uh, in earliest, you know, probably about three weeks ago uh, Ancient history, which, Scott, ancient history Well, <laughs> funnily enough Chris, I'm talking about it because my predictions are coming true oh, nice, and nobody,
1: nice. nobody likes to, then, more than to talk about something you, they predicted And that if you is can't give happening. yourself
2: credit, then, then who will?
1: <laughs> and if it didn't come true, so you never wrote the piece you have no recollection of it yeah. That's
0: right, it's disappeared off the web like like, like that uh, CNN interview with the uh, mother of the... It's molest- like the, time I uh, wrote the woman who accused Joe Biden of molesting her that's disappeared, but anyway... It's like that's the time
1: I wrote something in 2017 about how Theresa May was about to do very well at an election. I, never <laughs> I, I seem to remember that article uh, ever again. Yeah.
0: Never to be seen again. Um, no, this was that uh, ideas of uh, hibernation, freezing, unfreezing, V-shaped recoveries, ignored that all the restrictions actually have a ratchet effect. Anything government does, I mean, the ratchet effect is an old idea. It was um, uh, coined about, you know, 40, 50 years ago, that when governments do things, uh, it always seems to be one way. Um, I even modified the metaphor to, uh, it's like a cable tie. Much easier to get a cable tie on, uh, much harder to get it off. Certainly, you need uh, some, a pretty strong set of, um, of shears or scissors to to get the damn thing off and, and that is being borne out uh, by what you say in the UK that you can't just simply reverse the process that got you to where you are. You need to take uh, very, very active measures and find a very, very different way of doing it and uh, that's really concerning for the UK.
1: Look, it is quite concerning and, and I was just kind of looking back at perhaps the most influential academic paper uh, on. the you know the, the 21st century which is this paper from nile ferguson at, at imperial college in london and his collaborators that basically predicted if the uk didn't act um in response to coronavirus to be 500,000 deaths now now that that is something that would have never happen simply because people were starting to act in different ways voluntarily but what that paper then presented was two different kind of strategies at what it called a mitigation strategy which is kind of like what Sweden's doing, a little bit less less than what Sweden's doing, and which was basically kind of guidance on, on less social interaction, which is where we're gonna to have to step down to at some point. And then it offered a suppression strategy with with the kind of more draconian measures saying, you know, stay at home, don't interact with other people unless you really have to for, for very good reasons. Um, Something There's a few interesting things about that paper, which is uh, there was obviously no effort to consider what the costs of the, the policy recommendations were. Um, but there's also some interesting things in terms of, uh, even now Ferguson has said himself, that he underestimated um, the extent to which people would follow the guidance. Uh, They thought that they could get transmission down by maybe 70 or 80 percent. It's ended up uh, being down by 90 percent very quickly. So people have, in in some ways, acted much further than the epidemiologists expected. It's not a criticism of them. I don't think they could know in advance how people would react to these shutdowns. But I think it does potentially point to the fact that even without these lockdowns, we still see a lot of the economic cost. We still see a lot of social distancing. We still see a lot of reduction in, in the virus. Um, which leads me to think that, that it is possible to start removing some measures and just kind of seeing what happens. Um, Australia in some ways does face the same challenge of the UK, which is that you don't want the barracks to come back. You've managed to actually successfully suppress it and now you have to keep your borders basically closed for, for, for in, indefinitely, at least for the moment, um, or have some very good controls on the borders. Um, the UK has got to put up some controls on the borders in the first place because currently there aren't any um if people come back where, and there's no requirements to be quarantined or anything and then you've got to start worrying about how you can start reducing the measures over time without allowing a new outbreak um and the problem with this is it's all it's all very much um flawed in the same way kind of economic central plan is flawed. i worry the epidemiologists are actually very similar to the economists in the sense that they think they can pull levers and people react in predictable ways oh. but, a, a,
0: absolutely, I think there's there's actually an important difference though um, between Australia and the UK. I mean, at the moment, we, the discussion we've been having, it's like, isn't Australia lucky? Very, you know, low caseload, low fatality rate uh, compared to the UK. Um, I worry though that, and same with New Zealand, uh, that we've now entered this this trap, of course. Uh, where we have uh, very, very little immunity amongst the population, uh, which means that other things being equal, uh, any sort of outbreak will have, you know, a faster rate of transmission than you might find in, say, the UK, where obviously a lot of people, uh, including your good self, have been exposed and indeed may have experienced symptoms. Um, And so in the UK, when you start to relax some restrictions and and instead of, say, 500 new cases a day, it doubles to a 1,000, that would still be in sort of the order of magnitude that looks uh, manageable and steps will be taken. I worry that in Australia where, you know, I think Queensland yesterday had exactly zero new cases, um, the first sign of relaxation and maybe we get five new cases or something like that, there's going to be this, this mass panic um, and we have a population actually, you know, much more at risk. We we could have actually, you know, dug ourselves a hole. That's one of the things that worries me.
1: Um, well, so I just think the potential danger for Australia, and especially if you speak to the, the Swedish epidemiologist, is that, well, you're just going to get uh, it passing through the population uh, when you remove the lockdown, and then you're inevitably going to have to do another lockdown. Um, whilst if you kind of slowly manage the flow to the point where you have some herd immunity, um, you could potentially fight the virus um, very slowly by, by quote-unquote flattening the curve rather than suppressing the curve altogether. That is still a dangerous strategy though, considering the, the fact that we, we're not completely certain on the mortality rate of this virus. Uh, we're not certain the healthcare systems could can manage that. We're also just not certain that people actually do develop immunity. Um, we, we think that, that might be the case, but we're not sure how long that immunity is gonna last for, the extent to which people um, uh, if they've got antibodies for one strain necessarily or immune to another strain there's a lot of complexity that we're just unanswered parts here where we, we really don't know Just so in some ways it's good we have all these natural experiments um that we will yeah. be able to watch different states in different countries and how they've reacted and hopefully that'll Teach us something I, about her. I think
2: immunity. in I I, th- I think in this discussion, we too often assume that herd immunity is something that we can expect in the same way that we might expect a virus, because it's um, we don't actually have the evidence to suggest that there would be herd immunity for this particular virus, because it relies on um, the assumption that there would be immunity at all. Um, My suspicion is that what we're going to do is get very quick to get um, uh, strong uh, case management and that um, instances of the virus are going to be less severe. We're going to be better at testing it long before we get to a um, sort of national herd immunity, let alone a global herd immunity. Um, If we're going to reopen our borders to the world, if we're going to allow people to travel for tourism and business, uh, I, I, I don't know that the herd immunity strategy globally is going to be how we get out of this.
0: Uh, just, Matthew, I, I do want to ask, coming back to Sweden, uh, what it's like in the UK, because here in Australia, a lot of our listeners are extremely interested in what's happening in in Sweden. and um, But uh, what's being filtered through uh, the mainstream media is, is very, very negative uh, and conflates a whole bunch of factors um, Sweden's a bit closer to where you are, all things considered. Um, what's what's the coverage like in the UK? Is, is is Sweden actually seen as an intriguing alternative, or is it, or is it also sort of being demonised as those crazy Swedes?
1: Look, I think it's either being uh, largely demonised or not really talked about that much. Um, there are some comparisons if you if you compare uh, Sweden to some of its Scandinavian cousins uh, and their their, um, death per capita is is higher. Um, But on the other hand, if you compare Sweden to uh, some other European countries like Italy or France or Spain, uh, their death per capita is lower. So Sweden's kind of midway through the pack. So it's not clear um, what we can learn from them just yet. We've had a lot more comparisons in the UK. If you wanna be positive about the UK, compare compare the UK to the US, um, which has obviously got the biggest outbreak in the world. Um, if you want to be negative, you, there t- tends to be a lot of comparison to Germany. And Germany was is not the most successful country, but more successful than the UK and impressive compared to the the France's or the, the Italy's or the Spain's or the world. Um, I think there's often too shallow a debate um, in the UK. There's talk about New Zealand, but there isn't really much talk about Australia. And um, then we don't really hear that much about Singapore or Hong Kong or South Korea. So I think the international comparisons is because they're so varied and they're so complex. I'm oh they love, talk, they love
0: talking they love talking about me. jacinda Ardern because yeah. she's a socialist it's <laughs> it's <laughs> no, like- a woman and she's a socialist and look look how well they're doing isn't you know this, yeah, is, yeah. this is the future right there that's that's why that gets written up in the media
1: it is it is a bit bizarre to the fact that new zealand had almost no cases and now has a worse um death per capita than australia so it doesn't seem like that much of a success story compared exactly. to australia but scott morrison obviously isn't as much of a cushiony he's not as cuddly yeah
0: you can't can't put up posters of scott morrison on your university dorm wall
2: (laughs) (laughs) matthew matthew Matthew, one of the things that you've you've been looking at is this testing question and it strikes me that it seems like the big difference between somewhere like germany And the united kingdom is that the approach that they've had to testing um where uh germany and australia for that matter um if you've got um a, a, a these days at least if you've got the full map of symptoms for COVID 19 then you can get tested in the uk at least um it was the case a couple of weeks ago that if you had all the symptoms and even if they thought that you had COVID-19, you just had to stay at home. You weren't supposed to go to the hospital unless you needed literally to be hospitalized. Um, uh, now, obviously, on the first instance, that's a um, they're trying to ration the tests, but you've made some points that there's a policy failure there as well. Um, why don't you talk us through some of those issues that, that you've identified?
1: Sure. So in the UK, Public Health England is this kind of quango responsible for um, emerging uh, outbreaks of infectious diseases. And they, they had all these kind of mothballed labs ready to go in case of emergency. Um, and so, what they did at the st- in, in January is they're one of the first countries in the world to develop uh, a COVID 19 test, a test they claim was quite a good test, Their problems emerged later. But then, what happened is they were extremely slow to um, distribute that test, first of all, to Public Health England's dozen laboratories around the country. They waited till about February 10 to do that, at which point they could only do about a thousand tests a day. And then they waited until February in order to allow the NHS, the hospitals, um, to begin testing as well. Now, this had completely disastrous consequences. At the same time, they were ignoring offices, um, offers from animal testing labs to help with testing. They were ignoring offers from universities, offers from businesses, offers from charities who have labs that could have expanded the testing capacity. And then so, At that point in kind of February, early March, we had testing limited only to people who'd kind of recently been to a hotspot. At that point, we didn't even know where all the hotspots were, mind you. And then also people who had uh, close contacts with those who had um, tested positive. So at the same time, there were kind of quite substantial community outbreaks in February that weren't noticed because we were testing so little because that centralization and the bureaucratic controlled by public health england because they they kept along this mantra that where basically we need to control this process um it really wasn't until uh kind of really late march april that that changed at the same time though this is actually and what's interesting about the uk is the uk really changed from what was kind of more of a swedish style strategy to more of a continental uh europe style strategy so the original uk strategy largely based on the outbreak of a kind of h1n1 type flu was to, first of all, try to uh, contain an outbreak, that is detect the early cases. They weren't trying to detect every case like Australia or Singapore or South Korea, um, and then to stop the spread for as long as is reasonably possible And um, the document said So there wasn't really a goal to stop a large outbreak of this virus. And then we moved in kind of mid-March uh, to the delay phase. At that point, they just kind of, stopped, as you said, they stopped testing in the community. Uh, so when I came down with symptoms in mid-March, uh, there was just no conceptual way for me to get a test. I was just told to isolate at home for 14 days and, and just make sure I you know get somebody else to deliver food to my place, rather than trying to see whether or not I had it and, and track my contacts. Um, at that point, the, the UK government had effectively given up on trying to stop community transmission in in the most kind of traditionally effective way which is to that, that must have really change. made you feel
0: <laughs> that must have really made you feel cared for
1: you really loved <laughs> just, so as a foreigner just, in the,
0: just in go the- home and sweat in under your blankets and yeah yeah try to drink some water
1: yeah i mean it, it's it kind of as a foreigner you have to pay a 300 pounds a year uh, surcharge to use the NHS. So I'm not sure what value I'm getting out of my of my surcharge <laughs> if, I, if I can't get a test. I mean, in the in the government's defence, after um, so I I basically began began critiquing them at the start of this month. Since then, they have quite heavily engaged the private sector. Uh, they've got this ambitious goal to do 100,000 tests a day by the end of the month. In the last couple of days, they've opened up testing uh, to anyone who has symptoms who's in a kind of. Uh, Frontline jobs, so people who work in supermarkets or healthcare workers or people who work in utilities or in any kind of job where you you still allowed to go out and work. Um, so they are f- trying to fix this problem. The problem is that it's it's in, in some ways it's going to be very helpful from this point forward to stop further outbreaks. But they really jumped the ship uh, in February, and this has yeah. kind of been pretty widely acknowledged now that Public Health England very much uh, failed in their their core duty, which is to protect the public's health. And this is the organisation which. Particularly, the libertarian right has been critiquing for years for their excessive focus on nanny state policies, on sugar taxes, on on alcohol, and when an actual public health crisis comes, they can't fix the problem.
0: Who knew that government might fail? Never, never been thought of before. Um, Speaking of continental approaches, I I would like to um, uh, look across the English Channel, Uh, not so much at the uh, coronavirus. but what some of the economic devastation has meant for the EU, the uh, Britain, of course, praise be to God, has finally announced that it's exiting the EU. And in the background, there are still those negotiations going on underway. But it's um, uh, it's time now to talk about some of the, the, the stresses perhaps that, you know, uh, Great Britain's left just in time that are playing out on the continent.
1: Yeah, look, that, that's absolutely right, Scott. I think, the EU is is having what some might say is a, is a bad war in many respects. Uh, the EU's already had to apologize to Italy for lack of solidarity in, in the early days of their outbreak. Um, they were pretty slow when it came to, to dealing with issues on the border of the EU and accepting some needs for even some internal border controls to, to stop the spread of the virus. And now um, there's some substantial um, questions being asked because really the fundamental issue with the euro, has always been the fact that you've got a monetary union without a fiscal union, um, and the reason why you don't have fiscal union, I think, rightfully so, is some of the stronger countries, particularly the kind of Germany or Netherlands, uh, don't want to be fiscally responsible for the, the largesse of the Italian or the Greek state. At the same time, now this is this is proving to be um, really quite a testing moment for the EU. This could be, and, and I don't think this is really being acknowledged widely enough. This this could be the end of the EU. I mean, the, the borders are already shut between EU countries. Um, there's been a huge um, ramp up in support for uh, Itali- Italian uh, separatist uh, activities, that is Italy following Britain in leaving the EU. And that particularly came because of the the lack of willingness of the rest of the EU to support corona bonds or euro bonds, that is to kind of mutualize the debt so that the Italian government wouldn't have to pay as much um, on its debt that it could kind of share the, the, the liability uh, with the German taxpayers um, and, and their much stronger fiscal position. Of course, uh, the Germans have really wanted that. There's some signs um, Angela Merkel uh, might be willing to sacrifice that principle for the sake of keeping the EU together. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a very much an understressed union. Whilst at the same time, you've got uh, Viktor Orban over in Hungary putting in place some quite uh, authoritarian dictatorial uh, measures that he he basically can now rule by decree without parliament. So um, in terms of the what the EU is supposed to be achieving by, by keeping countries democratic and, and united and liberal um, isn't really succeeding either.
2: At the same time, though, I mean, they, they're going through what I understand is a seven-year budget process and, and it looks, or at least the meeting report, media reporting seems to suggest that there's going to be a really significant increase in EU funding that presumably will be filtered down to Italy and Spain and some of the harder hit poorer economies. So uh, it, it must be the case that Germany, which has so much riding on the continued um, sustenance of the EU, is going to act to um, to support the political union at least.
1: Well, there's definitely a lot of talk about direct monetary transfers um, when it comes to the EU. There's, there's already certain funds um, in place that are being unlocked to be, be given to, to Spain and, and Italy and, and whoever else needs it. It is it is a difficult question. It's it's this ultimate question of, of whether Germany is willing to keep up this bargain um, of the keeping the political union together. This this you know quite respectable post-war project at the same time as trying to work towards ever closer union. So Angela Merkel's actually about to become well, the rotating chair. Um, of, of the European Council, which is the, 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 the government's uh, meeting point within the EU. And she, what she's talking about is uh, international financial transaction tax, uh, some kind of international carbon tax on travel, uh, minimum tax rates across the EU. So certainly the Germans' uh, point of view is, okay, well, we need to be more united now. We need to, we need to keep our um, economic and fiscal policies even closer together uh, over the coming years as a a way to respond to this. So therefore, I'm coming to the view that this is really make it or break it for the EU does the EU become, you know, the super state that the Eurofederals have always wanted or does that project fail? Um, And in many ways, the the, the Eurocrats are going to try to use this crisis as a justification for for a greater role for the EU in in European politics. Mm. And perhaps that's the only way to make the EU work economically because Mm. right now it doesn't really work to have this this separated world. But at the same time, you're going to have these massive political issues because it's not that popular um, in a lot of these countries um, and you're going to have a lot more Euroscepticism. The
0: difficulty with that strategy, though Matthew, is just the um, the sheer scale of uh, the economic issues they face, mm. um, and, and and have been facing. And it's not so much the EU; it's the um, it's the euro. And uh, uh, readers of the IPA review, or uh, members uh, get the IPA review uh, in their letterbox four times a year. We'll recall an article by Oliver Hart, which a German-born economist now heading up the new zealand initiative um where he was talking about uh, over a year ago the uh, all the problems with the euro um the fund you know the massive debts that basically get run up in the southern states and then uh, smeared across uh the european central bank and indeed the imf um corona bonds just sounds like the latest iteration of this and we are talking trillions and trillions of dollars um I, I posted, uh, Oliver's actually been writing again recently, I posted this at uh, ipa.org.au and uh, he had a great article and this is always a headline to grab your attention, it's like brace for European financial Armageddon <laughs> <laughs> and um, and this is one of the reasons why Oliver no longer lives in Germany but in mm-hmm. New Zealand and um, uh uh, before that, Australia, because no, it's it's just uh, a looming disaster. The 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 arguments for currency union were always weak, and and what's clear in you know in the book that uh, uh, Oliver was reviewing and that he talks about is it, it's never made sense in any kind of monetary or financial sense. It's only ever been as a way of uh, locking together the political project of the European Union. So it was, but, it was yeah. done done for the wrong reasons. Uh, it's not working. And at, at some point, the the whole edifice could collapse. I'm, I'm, I'm very con- concerned about the EU... And the impact that might have on the world economy.
2: But that's—I mean—that's one of the fundamentally unstable things about the European Union. And if it—if it is the case that every time there's a global economic crisis, the EU falls on the verge of collapse because its monetary and political system have been so poorly designed. That is not a political system that will survive. Now, whether it falls down um, as a result of the COVID-19 crisis or whether the next crisis, unless you can set up a political system and an economic system that doesn't immediately fall apart the moment there's a downturn or a crisis, um, uh, it's it's just absolutely not going to survive.
1: I don't think, though, you can underestimate the extent to which uh, the Eurofederalists will use every crisis uh, to show the fact that there are flaws in a, in a half-in-half-out system. And then rather than saying we should have less control and you know, be less federalist, we need to be more federalist to solve the problem. I mean, more Europe is always their solution. And in some ways... Uh, they're not completely wrong I mean I think from a from a political accountability perspective they're wrong from an economic perspective um, more Europe kind of makes sense because as as you've said Scott that the fundamental issue of having uh, a monetary union without a fiscal union never really made any sense and that's because it, it quite frankly was a political project but it's also a political project with the goal towards a, a fiscal union. you've got to remember yeah, but the, um, yeah they, that, that ever closer union is the goal of the european union and they will keep going they, in that direction whether or not that hurts them or whether or not that causes more crises along the way i i think they're going to until it disintegrates in one grand moment they're going to keep going along that path
2: they, they have to pick one You can either be an alliance or you can be a country. And what they've done is they've declined to choose either. They're pushing in one direction without any actual explicit commitment to being a country. I'm not sure even the worst Eurocrat really thinks there's going to be a country of Europe. But unless you um, have a federal system that has the capacity to act like an actual federal government, you're always going to have these will it break apart, each crisis moment
1: they definitely do want a united states of europe and they are definitely building that um office so i remember uh a couple months ago i was at a conference that was uh and i was on a panel being chaired by um a member of the european parliament from italy and he was talking about how he, there needs to be a european welfare state and i was just shocked i never literally <laughs> never heard of the idea before and, I'm, and i basically said are, are you really sure the germans are going to want to pay uh, the pensions of of greek uh, retired Greek workers and the, politi- the politics of it seems ridiculous but that's certainly the kind of ideas that float around Brussels is this is how to create a super state at, at the European level so that, I think it's definitely the direction they're going in um, which kind of then brings us back to Brexit part of the argument about Brexit was oh you know leaving the EU is so uncertain you know what, what are you going to do outside the EU and at the same time it's like well, staying in the EU is also pronounced uncertain. We don't know where the EU is going. Uh, it does appear like it's going in a more centralised direction. And quite frankly, the UK's in many ways has been saved by a lot of what the, the direction the EU is now going. Um, the UK always had an uneasy relationship with the EU, um, particularly since the creation of the euro because of this kind of half-in, half-out situation where the UK, um, praise be to the Lords, has its own currency and, and that currency can float. And therefore, the UK is in a much stronger um economic position uh, as as a buffer to any kind of international shock um the fact is that the people though who were against uh brexit were also for joining the euro in the 90s um so they they were very much proven wrong in that respect and i think we can we're probably gonna look back in history and say this idea that the uk um took a risky path by leaving the eu was wrong it was in fact probably more risky to stay within this project particularly in the direction um... it was going It was
0: very good of the Chinese not to release the virus from that lab in Wuhan (laughs) until after... Britain had actually managed to achieve Brexit. It was very considerate of them, actually, all things considered. I I won't hear a bad word against them. (laughs)
2: In in, in that context, um, not the Wuhan lab line, uh, Scott, (laughs) which uh, which, is that the new podcast line. Um, uh, In in that context, I mean, it it does strike me that um, this must be the first time in three years that um, the UK politics is not entirely focused on Brexit. Um, But it it is at the same time, now that Brexit has happened, now that they've left the European Union, um, that's in fact when the reform has to occur. Um, Do you think that out of this, there's going to be more or less appetite for that growth enhancing reform that we all hoped you could get out of Brexit?
1: Yes, so so Britain's in a bit of a weird position at the moment, in the sense that while we have Technically, left the European Union, we're in this transition period, which means, for, for all intents and purposes, we're still in the European Union. We're still part of the single market and the customs union, and there's still uh, current situation aside free movement, and um, the UK is still paying a budgetary contribution. So, so and the UK can't diverge just yet, not until the end of this transition period that's currently scheduled uh, to happen at the end of this year. So, they're actually still ongoing negotiations. I'm um, even over Zoom in the last few weeks, the, the UK's negotiators have been talking to the EU. And there's still this ongoing debate about uh, and and an ongoing disagreement between the negotiators about the extent to which the UK wants to diverge. Now, one of the best parts, one of the best features of of Boris Johnson's premiership is the fact that he is very clear that leaving the EU means diverging from EU regulations and the EU regulatory state and being able to um, take our own path and create our own policies in the future, for for better or for worse, um, for real or for for good. the, the European Union, however, says, oh, actually, no, no, you're very close to us. We, we can't have you competing with lower tax rates or, or you know, uh, uh, less regulations than us. Um, that would be completely unacceptable. We need, and they call this the level playing field. Um, we, we need you to be on a level playing field to us with similar regulations to us so that you know, if you're selling into our market, um, we don't want you to be this kind of pro-growth tax haven, um, low regulatory state, Singapore on the Thames of Europe. Um, so that that's the kind of ongoing debate, and then there's also a question about whether or not there's time to finish these negotiations. It was already pretty ambitious to do it by the end of the year, let alone with everything else going on. The, the UK's official position is that there will be no extension. Um, in my view, I think there will be some kind of extension. I, I just don't think it's practicable at the moment at least with everything else going on to get those negotiations done. Um, but I think if if there's ever a justification for an extension, this is probably it. But at the same time, um, the extension has got to be have some value to it and in terms of achieving some outcome. And then you've got this secondary demand. I think this is something that is much more challenging to us, which is whether or not Brexit is actually a project for, for economic good or economic evil mm-hmm. um, in the sense that Uh, For a lot of the government's policies, oh, we want to diverge uh, from from the EU rules. In fact, what we want to do is give businesses more subsidies. Because there's EU rules, state aid rules, that say you can't just subsidise business arbitrarily and and that that's anti-competitive between countries. Um, Or there's there's certain EU rules um, uh, about uh, regulation. The UK says, oh, in fact, we're going to go further on regulation. So it's not necessarily that we're going to get a free market nirvana, um, out of Brexit, which is quite disappointing. And that, that kind of speaks to a challenge we now have, which is to make the case for, well, if we're going to leave the EU, if we're going to um, have growth and more jobs after uh, Brexit, we're actually going to need to to have a platform, a pro-growth platform, rather than something which is um, more regulatory or higher tax.
2: And in that sense, you, you know, the United Kingdom faces the same uh, policy pivot that um, Australia has, perhaps just more exaggerated because of the Brexit opportunity, Um, there's going to be really significant, uh, as you pointed out, there's there's really significant job losses already in the United Kingdom. Um, And the choice that political parties and um, policymakers have to make make is, are they going to continue the welfare state model that they have developed in in emergencies as a response to COVID? Or are they going to do longer term pro-growth policies? Now, we know when governments... Have faced that decision. They've fallen on both sides of the ledger, um, uh, and 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 Brexit provides a really significant opportunity, almost a a map of what you could do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the Johnson government will do it.
1: And that's, I think, that's the intrinsic difficulty. Um... Uh, As Scott is probably going to point out soon, I I did uh, a piece for the forthcoming IPA review before this crisis about the kind of particularly focusing on the economic direction of parties on the right with a big focus on the UK. Um, And there's no particular reason to think that this is a free market government. And and that's very um, saddening to say, but there's a lot of um, urges within this government in order to reach out to those new voters in the north. They have this image in their mind of basically the fact that they're still Labour voters, they're still left-wing on economics, and therefore we have to give them what they want. We have to give them a lot of state spending. Now, we know that's not how you um, ensure economic growth. It's not how you create more jobs in the future. Um, I What I'm most worried about is that they'll try to use this crisis not as an opportunity to you know, slash and burn all the regulations that are holding back competition and dynamism in the economy. They'll use it as an opportunity um, to try to do what they call their levelling up agenda, which is vaguely defined as we need places outside of London to have economic growth, which is an admirable goal. But if the way they want to achieve that is through kind of status means, it's really not going to achieve a lot. And at the same time, we're layering that on with something about climate change and and net zero by 2050. So you've got all these... Basically, um, conflicting goals going on at the same time, and therefore, you're probably not going to really achieve any of them.
0: So, what, what I might do, Matthew, is um, when that IPA review hits the, um, the post boxes of IPA members um, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll get you back on because, as, as you say, as you said in that article, uh, that debate going on in the UK has echoes uh, in Australia and across the Western world as parties of the center right seem to have actually done better at winning elections, uh, but uh, not necessarily about delivering um, a smaller government or, or a sort of a truly liberal society that we might want It's sort of a ascendant big government conserv- conservatism or just, just big government. Um, so it's an important debate there that um, I would like to come back to uh, very soon. But we have come to that part of the show where we uh, present our books and culture picks what we've been reading watching or listening to and uh matthew i think yours is completely opposite yes yeah, so i've
1: been reading uh, albert camus the plague which is about the emergence of first of all of hundreds of dead rats in uh oran and in french algeria as the precursor to a forthcoming plague and it it kind of works on many different levels to, to the, the world we're, we're currently experiencing. Um, first of all, there's a sense of denial, the uh, rejection that something as um, ancient and as foreign as a plague could come and um, cause horror to us now. Um, but then as the realization slowly dawns on the town, we, we witness the, the horrors of death, um, the, the way people respond to adversity. Um, there's just a quite extraordinary um, moments in the book um, and I think it's it's very much um, driven by Camus existentialism um, the the sense in which it, all this death is going on but and and how do we deal with the suffering um, that, that is our lives and and the book was written um, during largely during World War II and then published straight afterwards and it's, it's largely seen as the plague is a bit of a, a metaphor for the Nazi occupation of France and the suffering that caused um, but then it also raises those kind of broader questions about, with all these awful things going on around us, what do we do? How do we how do we find um, a sense of of meaning in a, in an otherwise godless world? And, and one of uh, the the main bad guys in the book is this um, p- pious. Uh, Catholic priest who says this is the punishment for suffering you know there's there's a reason why this is happening Um, and Kipuk just kind of rejects that he he basically says no no there's there's no good reason for this there's no there's no logic to it it just kind of is and this is something we need to deal with Um, and we need to find a a sense of of what to do with our lives in the context of um, the what is often called in his um, philosophy the absurd this idea that we have a human intended tendency to try to find some meaning um, and purpose in in an otherwise irrational and chaotic universe.
2: No, it's it's a, um, a, a lot of people are reading it at the moment and it just strikes me that for 70 years that book has been read as a metaphor for invasion a um uh, for the nazi invasion it's been read as a um metaphor or a a way to work out existential ideas these days people are reading it because they're just really interested in plagues plagues. (laughs) (laughs) they're just like oh okay well what were the podcasts like then
1: (laughs) it it is it is a very well done directly as a, a plague and and in terms of how we do that and you know some there's some amazing kind of just lines hidden in there you know one must fight in one way or another and not go down on one's knees and what's quite interesting is is at the moment we've got a lot of the sense of kind of heroism of our of our healthcare care um and our frontline workers and in some ways that that's probably right but but Camus kind of rejects that and his main uh, character um Dr. Ricks, it uh, doesn't describe him as a hero. He's kind of just doing his job, you know. He's just just kind of handling in this otherwise meaningless world. But at the same time, there there are a lot of um, there are a lot of kind of underlying references to, to Nazis yeah, and, but and I, invasion. But I, but
0: I but I did I did see uh, I might I'll share in the show notes. Um, uh, I, I cheated a bit by watching the uh, the, the the School of Life uh, video. I shared it around a few weeks ago uh, on this, <laughs> on this book and. The the point about that doctor was um he said, he denies that he's a hero, but in many ways what he's doing is being a good man. I mean, so we you can, I guess, hold up the, the frontline health workers and others, um, provided that you don't labor the heroic angle too much. You just say that um you 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 are being good by doing your job and you you don't have to be some amazing celebrity or it's not the Jacinda derns of the world that we should be idolizing for their world historical interventions in any of this um, but that you can find goodness and I think it's a it's, it's almost an old-fashioned stoic sort of message that um, uh, mm. whilst maybe maybe there's no inherent reason in, in why this suffering is visited upon us but you can find in meaning in how you respond to it and and, and how people, Responds. So uh, I'm looking forward to reading it.
1: Yeah, and it's that, that question. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in the book about um, not just a plague descending on the town being in a state of plague that, that you, you have a you, you don't have a choice whether or not the plague comes and the pestilence comes upon your town, and uh, it's more of a question of whether or not um, you, you choose to be in that state of plague or whether or not uh, you should find a way to overcome that um, by by basically finding something to do, finding a way to help. There's a big focus on the, the development of health. St- uh, teams, people who you know go around and, and do jobs that need to be done in the town, which I think is uh, very similar to what we've seen in the UK when it comes to the reemergence of civil society. I'm um, in a in mutual aid groups. I'm on a on a WhatsApp group uh, for for you know my square block, um, and there's about 20 people on it. Uh, there's been very few actual requests for help, but there seems to be this um, very strong willingness of people to do something and, and provide something and. and you no, know, not not heroic, but just you know, how can I help in these in these tough times? How, what can I do um, to help others? Um, not not out of a any grander idea of, of self, but just things need to be done, and and, and we should do them.
0: Absolutely, and uh, and I gather that also in the book, the plague eventually ends. So, <laughs> yes, so, good news, yeah, everyone. That's Someday. something we can all look forward to.
1: It ends, but it, it's always there, and it can always come back. Yeah.
0: Um, I might go next because Chris is going to finish this segment with some light relief. Um, But what I I have is is not a book, but it is 27,000 words uh, on Medium. It is about – it's a takedown essentially uh, of the American statistician come philosopher, come writer uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Uh, Who's the guy I've got a lot of time for? I've I've reviewed – um, one of his books, Skin in the Game uh, for the IPA review I've, I've read another one, Anti-Fragile been very very interested in in what uh, he has to say uh, phrases like skin in the game uh, the black swan uh, which is this supposed impossible event that just keeps coming along um, supposedly unforecast but it's very arrival is, is almost certain that you're going to have a black swan in one way or another, these are phrases that Taleb's made famous he claims uh to have picked the 87 stock market crash and also the gfc uh and has got quite a reputation around this uh as in, particularly in financial markets but uh alan farrington uh is a is a uk-based right i think he's uk-based writer who's essentially come out with a lot very very long screed uh he's looked at toleb on twitter in particular and he's just decided. That, uh in at the end of the day he, he's a bully uh that taleb uh very, he's got bullying behavior on um on Twitter and that in fact he might just be an all-around bullshitter uh, <laughs> a bullying bullshitter uh was uh was actually his original tweet to launch this diatribe he'd been most struck by uh and I've seen it myself with um when Taleb, I don't do much on Twitter but I saw him go after um, uh, Charles Murray, uh, who I have a lot of respect for, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, who I have a lot of time for. and the, the
2: legendary free banking historian George Selgin at the Cato Institute, is, just um, obviously not knowing who he was.
0: Yeah, that's right. So uh, this, this pattern of behaviour is what Farrington um, identified because when he goes after these people, and like I'd say, I, I didn't know Selgin, but you do, but I, you know, Peterson and Mario heard of, and and the attacks are not like uh, engaging with their thought uh, and saying why it's flawed. You know, that's all quite reasonable. It's more just ah, oh, he said this. This just proves he's an idiot. He knows nothing. You know, on on what possible basis could he say that? You know, and he's he's and then it's like this is all described in my book. Link here. You know, it's that it's that sort of thing. And anyone who comes back and says what on earth are you talking about? Uh, he just says, uh, you're blocked. But so it, it's but there, sort of smash and grab raids on, on Twitter.
2: Is there a, I mean, a lot of public intellectual work, and Nassim Taleb is absolutely in that sort of international public intellectual. A lot of that public intellectual work is performative. It involves you, um, uh, it involves the intellectual picking fights um, it involves the intellectual um, uh, just identifying uh, battles that they might be able to take over and then win um, and it sort of strikes me that that he's almost a, a satirical version of that he's everything that is perverse about the demand for legendary public intellectuals just ramped up to 100 um, or 110%. And um, it, it, so, so I'm, I'm quite critical of him. And I've never been wildly um, impressed, although he's got a lot of concepts that you can use and that are easy to apply and are well explained. Um, that you know, And Black Swan is one of them and Antifragile is another. Um, but it just strikes me as that um, to be critical of Nassim Taleb is really to be critical of so many of these global public intellectuals who are more famous for the the fight than they are for the ideas? If you know what I mean, sort of the Paul Krugman, maybe. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Look, I mean, you can list uh, uh, many of them on my uh, many of them who, who I quite like, and there are global public intellectuals that are more or less impressive. But it just strikes me as that's a business, and seeing through the um, uh, some of the conceits of that business is really valuable.
1: I, I mean, I, I think I think part of the issue with Taleb is that he is somebody who chooses to pick fights with people who notionally he should be friends with or aligned with intellectually um, he'll just he'll just be quite indiscriminate and abusive about it which might be part of the performative element but it definitely uh, is something that's unnecessary and probably it's kind of entertaining to read but i think you're, i think the the critique is right that you don't really understand what he's saying because He's, he's either writing nonsense or he's writing in, in such a way that he's self-defined all the words um, and using them in, in, a, in a weird, unclear way. What I find the even deeper critique, though, and, and I can't say I read the whole Medium post, but I, I did start reading it as a sense in which, well, uh, to what extent is, is Taleb actually just um, stealing other people's ideas and putting fancy phrases around them and, and having a lack of humbleness and, and a lack of willingness to reference Uh, the people whose ideas on which his ideas are based i think we know that everyone uh, stands on on the shoulders of giants we we don't precisely have unique thoughts we just have unique combinations of other people's ideas and, and our ideas developers on top of in a kind of evolved way. Um, But Taleb, of course, wouldn't admit that. He he would claim to be unique and and be the first person to think of anything like a black swan or anything like an intellectual yet idiot. And he's very good at these terms and very good at explaining these ideas, um, but he could perhaps be a better person if he was a lot more humble about it rather than claiming that he's the inventor of all these things and he's smarter than everyone else in the universe.
0: <laughs> In, no, no, that's exactly it. That that that's where, to, if you don't want to read the whole twenty-seven thousand words, that's where it finishes, um, with that idea that, and which also gives me some comfort that a lot of the things I've read and liked, it's like they, they're still true. But I, um, I finished up uh, paraphrasing Dr. Johnson and uh, saying it, it's the old story that um, you know much of what Taleb writes um, is uh, right write, uh, and original. Unfortunately. Uh, What is right is not original and what is original is not right. Um, (laughs) So it's it's that dilemma. But there is, so there's still good stuff in there, but he he has no willingness to acknowledge that it comes from much, much older sources. And even a phrase like skin in the game apparently has been around for much, much longer than Taleb in the financial markets. So that was, that was my share. Um, thank you, gentlemen, uh, for sharing your books and culture picks. And for I them- haven't shared
2: mine yet. That's the that's the critical <laughs> problem, though. Ah, so.
0: yes. There you go.
2: So, so- no, no, very very briefly, um, uh, because we're running slightly over time. Um, I, as you know, am a famous global public intellectual, likeness interlab, and I've been turning Let's
1: hear my be using um, on Twitter, Chris. This t- needs yes, to stop.
2: <laughs> um, and I've been turning my incredibly powerful intellect to watch the Jack Ryan TV show, um, Tom Clancy's character um uh jack ryan who um uh first of course of the novels and then played by many actors um alec baldwin harrison ford ben affleck and someone else in a much more forgettable movie this time he's played chris by pine. um chris pine. chris pine that's the one that's the one this time he's played by john krasinski john krasinski people will know as jim from the office I have watched a season and a half of Jack Ryan so far, and I still can't get over the idea that Jim from <laughs> The Office is Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. Um, uh, but nonetheless, like it's 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 good fun. Um, it's on um, Amazon Prime. It actually goes through and replicates some of the sequences that you will know from either the books if you read them. Uh, I, I was a kid when I was reading them um, vociferously, um, uh, But you'll know some of the sequences um, From, you know, movies Such as Clear and Present Danger and so forth Unfortunately, it never really rises To the height of the best Jack Ryan movies, of which, of course, um, Hunt for the Red October is, is the best. But nonetheless, it is um, enjoyable. It does have a biological weapons um, and a pandemic sub-theme, certainly in the first one um, uh, that raises the level of absurdity. But nonetheless, it's a good fun show to fill in the hours while we are stuck in, um, I- I- in social isolation.
0: God knows we need that. And um, yes, uh, Hunt for Red October, I was shocked to discover, is 30 years old. Uh, Sean Connery, uh, defecting Russian-Soviet submarine captain. um, Jack Jack Ryan was around back then. Who knew?
2: And is an incredibly perfect movie. Just a, a, a brilliant movie from start to finish.
0: Yep, and, and it's obviously spawned spawned a franchise. So uh, good luck to them. Uh, we'll keep an eye out for that one. Now, as I was saying, uh, thank you for sharing your culture
2: picks. Um, Before, for some reason, you decided to watch talk about Jack Ryan. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh,
0: complete, completely lost the lost the thread of whatever the hell it is we're doing here. But I'm pretty sure this is the end of another looking forward. Thank all the listeners and viewers for joining us uh for this episode i'd like to thank my co-host dr chris berg thank you scott i'd like to thank our very special guest from the uk matthew lesh thank you for having me uh, it's been terrific and of course just stranger as always being our wonderful producer and editor uh if you're not already a member please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join donate get around this podcast and many of our other great digital products we'll be back with more looking forward next week.